Hey, want to play The Sims? Create, empower, captivate, inspire. The Sims is a platform where you control life, putting the power of creativity in your hands and celebrating it. It's a place that sparks imagination, connecting vibrant creators everywhere to unleash life's endless possibilities, both in-game and out. Get inspired at thesims.com and save 50% off for the holidays. Ignite creative inspiration and spark something with The Sims. Yesterday's concert is a proud member of the Pantheon Media Network. Um, I saw less and less of the denim jackets with the patches on them, which I myself had. You know, I had Iron Maiden on the back and I had all the patches. And so people put those jackets away and didn't wear them anymore. Honestly, it was conversations that you just had with your friends where, you know, one year it was Metallica and Maiden and Priest. And suddenly the next you're talking about Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and Nirvana. The culture did shift. It's romantic to say like in 91, it happened just like that. And in some ways it kind of did. But it took a while. It took a while to really seep in. And that, I would say, was probably by 93 or 94, which sadly is when it all started to actually go away. Welcome concert goers, music fanatics, and 90s rock fans. My name is Lance Ingram, and in this encore episode of Yesterday's Concert, our guest Rob Janicki of Generation Riff opens his jam journal to cover the rise and fall of early 90s alternative rock. Grab your earplugs as we see some of Grunge's best bands in small New York clubs. So I'm here with Rob Janicki, and we're going to be talking about some 90s rock and roll. Rob, set the stage a little bit for us. Tell us about Generation Riff. Sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. I really appreciate this. Uh, so Generation Riff is interesting because it started as a book idea. I've never written a book before, and it was an idea I had about um, the years 1991 through 2021. I realized, wow, it's been 30 years, and that was a tremendous part of my life. And so I decided to write a book about it. I got about five chapters in to my draft, and I hit a brick wall. And uh, that wall actually turned into some conversation with some people and some friends. And somebody was like, well, you know, maybe start a website or something like get yourself back into the mode of thinking about that. I'm like, wow, that's not a bad idea. And as quickly as that idea, you know, was given to me, I just ran with it. And it is now this multimedia website um, with writing, some video. It's really kind of the um, online version of what I hope the book to be focusing on you know music of uh, the early 90s, but it does go into music from uh, the late 80s because that's what really started that whole movement anyway. So that's kind of where it came from. And uh, I'm just letting it flow and do, do its thing. And so far, so good. Well, that's I asked you that question because I wanted to kind of set the stage. You are a 90s rock and roll aficionado. And so that's we're going to be talking a lot about the early alt-rock scene of the 90s and just kind of the grunge movement and some of what's going on. And since we're a live music podcast, we're going to be talking about what it was like to see those bands in that time. Uh, so I wanted to set that stage for everyone so they know you know what you're talking about when it comes to this kind of stuff. You are the, the pro here. <laughs> so set things up for me a little more. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Um, very far away from Seattle, Washington, but uh, <laughs> the two merged eventually. So yeah, I grew up in Brooklyn. Yep. What What was your uh, introduction to music? Were you 
just exposed at an early age? How'd you come into it? Yeah, I, I was actually. I grew up a uh, single family or a single parent uh, family. So my mom loves music and she was always listening to it around the house. And uh, I was born in 1973. So for people who don't want to do the math, I'm turning 49 this year. In the late 70s, there was nothing but AM radio and some FM radio being played at the house, top 40 stuff. So I grew up listening to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Elton John, Billy Joel, you know, what was what was on the radio? My mom's favorite performer, favorite entertainer, favorite musician was Elvis Presley. So there was a ton of Elvis music. So that was my foundation. And then uh, I discovered hard rock, heavy metal, stuff like Black Sabbath. Uh, Iron Maiden became one of my favorite bands. Um, early Def Leppard, because they were really pretty hard rock band in, in the very beginning. Um and this and then is that, like early 80s at the time, correct? Around the correct. time. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I would say that that went through 83 to 85-ish. And then in 86 is when I remember things kind of changing for me musically. Um, growing up in Brooklyn, I was around a ton of early rap music because New York is the home of rap. And you know, the uh, Queens wasn't far from Brooklyn, and there was a lot of rap from Queens, even though the Bronx always takes credit for it starting there. So that's should give the shout out to the Bronx. But rap was was pretty big in the mid 80s as it was coming up. So Run DMC, Public Enemy, Beastie Boys, KRS-One, stuff like that, you know, kind of got in. And at the time, rock wise, I had started listening to punk rock and what would become alternative. So those two groups of music started to, you know, kind of mesh for me. Who are your punk rock guys? Um, it started the way most punk fandom would start. I think um, it was The Clash. It was The Ramones, another band from Queens, you know, so. Um, but The Clash were really my 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 introduction to punk. And I, they've never left me. I, I They're one of my favorite all-time bands. So I started listening to Bad Religion. That was another one that was really big for me in the, in the mid-80s, mid to late 80s. That was the natural progression to what the alternative sound started, you know, to become bands like Soundgarden, Jane's Addiction, Violent Femmes, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Buffalo Tom. I mean, the Sonic Youth, another New York, New York band that was, you know, that was kind of punk. And that led to what happened in 1991 when I was a freshman in college. So I was the perfect age for a new revolution. And, you know, no one knew it was coming, but it did. And, I was, I was right there for it. What shifted you? Because you were talking about being the, into the hip hop and then you got into the clash and stuff. What was it about that that brought you in? Well, I think if you listen to um, not only the lyrics of the clash, but the sound, right? They were kind of like a, a, a they were a punk band for sure, obviously, but they incorporated a lot of world music. There was a lot of black music and in, in black culture in their music. They were huge reggae fans. The Clash were always talking about, you know, anti-racism and, 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 you know, equal rights for everyone. And that kind of, I guess, and they, they, they rapped. I mean, not, not well, <laughs> but, you know, some of their songs on Sandinista, they, they had some, they had some rap songs that, uh, or at least, you know, Joe Strummer was, was uh, uh, his cadence wasn't punk rock singing anymore. He was kind of talking some of the lyrics and it felt it felt militant at times. And I think the band that I identified the most with uh, rap wise in the 80s was probably Public Enemy. They've got, in my opinion, uh, a punk rock attitude 
and a hard edge and, you know, social issues, cultural issues, but in your face and militant, kind of like how a lot of the early Clash stuff was. So I think I made the connection with those two bands uh, in terms of punk and rap. What was it about the harder edge music? Because, I mean, I'm assuming this is kind of your, what, 13 to 15, somewhere around there in this time? 16? Yeah, a little bit. Exactly. Right, right. Yeah, 16, sure. So so what was it? Just that teenage angst that you latched onto this kind of heavy music? What was it that brought you in? I think so. You know, again, I, I you know, all teenagers probably go through these periods. And I was... I was writing too at a very early age. I always had uh, a love of writing. And I, I don't really know what I would call what I was doing. I don't know if there were song lyrics. I don't know if there were poems, but I was writing a lot of stuff um, just to kind of get whatever I was feeling out of me. And it was dark. And I looked, I, I still have some of it. And I look back, I was like, wow, I was, I was kind of, uh, I was angry. Are you okay uh, now? Mm, depends on who you ask. Uh, there we go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, you know, I, I think, and, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, I think coming from a single, uh, parent home and living through divorce and you know it, it it probably set me up for some for some angst that uh i was going to encounter anyway just eventually becoming a teenager but then you throw that on top of it and i think i was probably a little extra angry so i think hearing that music you know the the the, the volume uh the in your face uh style i mean that it appealed to me you know i think my favorite metal band at the time leading up to it was iron maiden and they were very very fast and not that they were angry but you know just loud fast aggressive music just did something to me when during all this i mean this is typically when most people go to their first concert when was your first concert that's that's a great question because i <laughs> I have to remember, I, I don't know, I'd have to look it up online to actually get the get get it exactly right. But um, Iron Maiden was involved in my, my first concert because it was the Power Slave Tour, which was had to be 1985. But in that same year, I saw uh, Prince and Duran, and Duran Duran. Wow. Uh, Covering the spectrum, aren't we? Yeah. And, and <laughs> I wish I could remember which came first. One, one or two of those may have uh, crossed over to 86 maybe I, I i don't know i'd have to look that up but those were the first three shows um you know real concerts i'd ever been to and yeah i was and you know it sounds like you know i liked a lot of aggressive music and i did but i think because of my earlier years listening to um you know top 40 radio you know duran duran had an appeal because they were you know really melodic and they were all over the radio and and you know new wave was obviously exploding in the 80s um so yeah, I, I just, and Ben Prince, obviously, you know, I, I'm going to call him a genius now because I know he was, but at the time I didn't look at him like that. I just thought like, wow, that's Prince and his songs are great. And this is a cool show. I'm just, I'm lucky. And that was the only time I saw him live. So I'm glad I got to do that. How is Maiden in the eighties? I mean, that was their peak, you know, that yeah. talk about that, that tour. I mean, that's, that's peak Maiden. How is it seeing that live? What do you remember about that? I remember yeah, it was incredible. I was the first, it, it was the first time I think I realized what a spectacle a rock show could be. They had this elaborate stage set and Power Slave, for those who don't know, the theme of the album was set in Egypt, in ancient Egypt. So there's pyramids and there's all that, you know, pharaohs and things like that. So that was the stage set and it was massive. So you walked in, it was at the Nassau Coliseum. Long Island, New York, and I, you know, you, you're transformed into ancient Egypt as you walk in. So that first struck me. But then I was taken by the the sheer power of it, you know, of these guys on stage with 
all of these people around and they just controlled everybody. It was like, I felt it was the first time I felt, well, of course it was the first time because it was one of my first shows, <laughs> if not my first, but it, I, I realized the power of live music at that point, you know? Um, and there is one, one little story. I do remember um, my dad had to take me to the show because I was about 12. And uh, so I couldn't go by myself. So he took me with a, a buddy of mine. <laughs> there was a guy sitting next to us who was slumped over in his seat during most of the show. And at one point, he kind of like nudged my dad and he opened up like a, um, like a baggie, like a, a, a plastic bag of, of some kind and showed my dad what was in it. And it was just a bunch of drugs. It was pills, <laughs> joints. Of whole, course. And he's like, you know, Hey, do you want any? And my dad's like, they're 12. Like get away from me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's incredible. So, yeah. So did you just expect every show after that people had candy <laughs> and a, ba- a little baggie for you? Uh it turned out that way as I got older. I mean, <laughs> you would see tons. I mean, I, I've, I'm not so I'm not into drugs myself, but I uh, most shows you can find it if you if you want. You know, just got to poke around to quote the <laughs> <Exactly>. deck. <laughs> so, uh, so moving on to the '90s, getting into that. So, when did you start to see kind of the cultural phenomenon of the alt rock of the '90s coming into play? When did you start to feel that? Probably around. Well, I was given a cassette tape by a buddy of mine named pat and on that tape there were some of the bands i had mentioned earlier um you know soundgarden violent femme sonic youth jane's addiction nirvana was on that cassette and it was um their song was about a girl from bleach so this had to be 88 or 89 and it was around the time of that cassette that i really started to see and hear other people in my circle you know obviously uh it wasn't wasn't nationwide yet talk about some of these bands and I think it was in 1990, maybe people started going to shows. I think um, uh, Smashing Pumpkins were playing Danceteria, which was a small club in Manhattan. Um, Nirvana played a small place called City Gardens in New Jersey that some of my friends went to. I did not go to that, but that was 1990, probably. But the real thing that the or, or the thing that made it really seem real was probably um, MTV, believe it or not, because anyone listening now, depending on your age, uh, MTV doesn't play music, but no, back in the anymore. day, not only did they play music, they broke a ton of bands and they would do late night shows like 120 minutes, alternative nation that they probably came a little bit later, uh, headbangers ball, like a lot of stuff that they wouldn't play during the day. They just threw on at midnight. Um, and they started to play a lot of these alternative and college, college radio bands, like, you know, REM, you know, even, even uh, U2 sometimes would fall into the, the, the college radio world, um, even though they were very big. But that sound was was uh, starting to get popular. And so it was right around that time, maybe 89 or 90. Something that's always fascinated me about the grunge movement is, you know, when I watch all the, the documentaries and commentaries and stuff like that, it's almost like you have the metal scene and then it was like a light switch just flipped on. And then overnight it was grunge. Yeah. I think I, would, I wanted you to answer this too, from the phrase of like a music fanatic. Cause I mean, you were obviously very plugged in, very aware. I mean, if you had friends going to that Nirvana show, you were in the know, yeah. you knew about the cool bands that were underground. And then you're saying like they blow up on MTV like that. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting because it, it was definitely, yeah, you, you, I was in a group of people that was kind of in the know, you know, that's, that's for sure. But myself and some of us also were still 
big fans of the metal bands. Now, there's a distinction, though, because, you know, the metal that we listened to would have been and was, you know, Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, and then going back to the old stuff like Black Sabbath, and, uh, you know, people want to count Led Zeppelin as a metal band, or, you know, you can have that argument. But, you know, the heavier rock stuff was still around in my world. I was still listening to it, not the hair metal stuff. The hair metal stuff I never got into. I, as a matter of fact, Def Leppard was one of my favorite bands as a, as a younger kid with their records On Through the Night and High and Dry, which are really good hard yeah, rock albums. Records. Yeah, Py- Pyromania, too. I mean, it's very polished and clean and, and pop, but they, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a good record. When those bands started to go, you go on and do nothing but you know ballads and, and the real softer stuff that, that wasn't who they were. That never spoke to me. Metallica was a band I was I was still into back then. You know, Guns N' Roses was was around, and that was you know the, the heavy music at the time. So I was still plugged into the heavy music. So I didn't I, I didn't look at it that way yet. A little bit later, I did. A little bit later, maybe by ninety two, ninety three, ninety four, I was like, okay, metal's gone. You know, yeah. but it wasn't immediate, not for me. Well, that was actually going to be my next question: is when did you notice that metal was gone? Was there like you notice they play in smaller venues. What what did you notice to say like there's been a shift here? Well, the radio, number one. Not that metal got a ton of radio play, uh, but you could find it. You know, there were college metal stations, and um, even you know MTV. You know, had, there were metal bands that they would play. So uh, commercial radio or MTV kind of scaled back on that. Um, I saw less and less of the denim jackets with the patches on them, which I myself had. You know, I had Iron Maiden on the back and I had all the patches. And so people put those jackets away and didn't wear them anymore. And it was honestly, it was conversations that you just had with your friends where, you know, one year it was, you know, Metallica and and Maiden and Priest. And suddenly the next you're talking about Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and Nirvana. And uh, it was it was just kind of the culture did shift. It did. It was it's, it's romantic to say, like, in 91, it happened just like that. And in some ways, it kind of did. But it took a while. It took a while to really seep in. And that, I would say, was probably by 93 or 94, which, sadly, is when it all started to actually go away. So you had the, going back, you had the cassette. What was your big moment where you started to shift and get more into this, kind of on par with your metal taste? I think... Are you are you asking musically like what, yeah 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 because I mean you talked about you know having the cassette with Jane's Addiction and Soundgarden and all that when were you so in, so much more intrigued to go buy the Soundgarden album or the Pearl Jam album when did that click for you I probably um, MTV did play a role for me it really did those late night shows um, were, were were very very interesting to me. Um, it might have been when I and it, it's, a, it's not a funny story, but it's an interesting line that my friend had. Uh, it might have been when I bought Bleach by Nirvana because from that cassette, I you know fell in love with it, and I was like, I need to you know figure out who these bands are and, and go buy buy some of this stuff. And About a Girl was a really cool, and, and and it's not heavy. It's not you know it's it's one of their slower songs I've ever yeah. written, but the melody and it just kind of it was just different. It's in Kurt's voice. It was all. It's all very different. And I said to my buddy uh, one day, uh, I was like, hey, come take a ride. Those on the East Coast would know this. Um, Sam Goody used to be a chain record store. And I was like, hey, you know, come take a ride with me to Sam Goody. Uh, I, I got to buy this record. And he's like, what are you going to get? I said, oh, it's a, this album by this band Nirvana. And he's like, wait, what? You're, 
you're going to buy a band called Nevada? What are you, what are you doing? <laughs> like he could, cause the name wasn't no one, yeah. you know, so he didn't even hear it out of my mouth correctly because, you know, and I'm like, no, they're called Nirvana. And I, so I went and I bought bleach and, and it might've been at that moment. And it was soon after, I guess. And then when 91 happened, I bought 10 on cassette. And I think I bought that same album three times on cassette before I switched over to CDs. Cause I was still listening to tape, you know, to tapes cause in the car, in the car too, the car didn't have CD players. So, um, and I listened to it so many times that it just destroyed itself and I had to keep buying it. So, but I would, I would probably go back. I would say to answer the question, it was probably bleach when I bought it. That, I mean, that's early. I mean, that was not yeah. bleached. It was not a su- commercial success by any means. No. And I wouldn't have known about it if it weren't for that cassette tape that my that my buddy made. So when so you have seen Nirvana, correct? Uh, no, I've never seen Nirvana. Oh, I thought you okay. So no. what other um, aside from Pearl Jam, which we'll get to in a little while, what other early '90s rock acts did you see in person during the '90s? Um, so uh, almost all of them. The, the two I did not see. No, the, the Nirvana is really the one. I was going to say I didn't see Smashing Pumpkins, but I did. I didn't see them at the time before they were popular that, that I, I, I passed up. Actually, I didn't really pass it up. I, I was sick ah. that day. I had a fever and I gave my ticket to a friend. So oh, you live with regret. I do. Yeah. I, I saw them all. I mean, I saw, you know, Pearl Jam. I've seen Soundgarden. Uh, I saw Tool. I saw Rage Against the Machine. I saw um, Alice in Chains. Uh, and, and then bo- I, both with Lane and, and without. I saw Stone Temple Pilots if, if, if they're in the mix. Um, I, I think I've seen most of the ones that people would know uh nirvana being the one that i, I didn't see which uh which of those was surprisingly the le- the most disappointing that you would expect to see mm, that's a good question um did any of them not meet your expectations yeah maybe i mean i it and, and it's all perspective yeah you know, everybody's got you know the it's the moment in time that you saw the band or, you know, bands have nights where they're just not as, as great as other nights. Um, and you can't see them all the time. So, you know, maybe your one shot was, was an off night. I didn't love the red hot chili peppers musically. They sounded very good. Uh, I, I, I don't know that Anthony's voice was what I would, you know, it didn't sound like the record. It just sounded like a lot of yelling. <laughs> you know, I've seen, I, I've seen Soundgarden a couple of times. And as great a singer as Chris Cornell was, um, and it's just weird too for me to say this because I remember one show where I was like, "Oh, his, like his voice wasn't what I was thinking or hoping was going to be." And then years later, I saw I, I, I saw um, Cornell solo, and I had chills throughout my body uh, listening to him sing on that night. So it's interesting you say Cornell because I saw one of his last five shows, I think. It was within the last 10 days of his life that I saw Soundgarden. And I kind of had that same experience with him and his voice. I mean, granted, that was 2017 or whenever it was, yeah. uh, you know, so a little bit after. But I mean, I, I knew he could wail and he definitely did wail a few times, but it was not to the degree that I was expecting it to be. I, was, I don't want to say I was disappointed because it was still a stellar show. But like you, I yeah. just kind of had a little bit of disappointment with his voice. It wasn't what I expected it to be. Yeah. And I, I think we we do that to ourselves sometimes too, because we we put some of these people up so high on this pedestal, and we we think that they're going to be exactly what the record sounds like, and that's really hard to do. As great a singer as he is, it's really really hard to do that, especially live. I mean, you're running around, you know. There's yeah, it, it's 
maybe our expectations get a little bit too high sometimes. No, that's that's definitely something, you know, I mean, there's been multiple bands that my expectations have ruined the show purely because I had too, way too high of expectations. Uh, so, yeah, that's definitely how it was. But so what where were you seeing these bands? Were they playing at the Coliseum or were they playing in clubs? Where were they playing mostly? So a little bit of of all of that. Um, obviously the bigger bands that I was seeing, some of them were at festivals because festivals were huge in the early nineties, Lollapalooza included, but other festivals as well. Some of them were playing, um, arenas, uh, you know, Madison square garden and living in New York is always a, 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 a place they'd show up to, but lots of clubs too. Like some of the better shows, and you know, this because, you know, seeing a, a show in an intimate setting is sometimes, you know, you, you can't beat that. Now, it's great to hear 25,000 people singing. That's one experience. But when you're at a club, like I saw Dinosaur Jr. in like a 1,500 or 1,000 person, wow. you know, venue in, in Manhattan. And my feet, and I wasn't, now I, I did my share of, of, you know, crowd surfing and moshing and stage diving. I did. I gave it up quickly because painful um but i did it uh but on this particular night i wasn't doing that but my feet were never on the ground because the you're packed in right with that few people eh, a thousand people is a lot of people but like still small club and you're moving around you can't control your movement and dinosaur jr was just killing it that night everyone was moving around and like you're just going with the crowd. And I started by the by the soundboard and then I was in the corner and then I'm up by the front and then you're moving all over the place. That was a wild night. I saw uh, Faith No More in a, in a club like that. Oh, wow. Yep. I saw Ice Cube. Ice Cube, um, you know, when, when he left N- NWA and did, you know, uh, I think it was Death Certificate, and you know, those early solo albums of his. What was his crowd like? Well, believe it or not, like back then it was, it, it was mixed, but everybody, like there was a lot of rock people there. You know, because NWA was was hard. They were, I mean, it was it was no doubt. That's rap. That's rap music. Is you know, but you know the the heaviness, the aggression, the anger that matched a lot of the rock music. So the crowd was mixed. I mean, you had rap people, you had rock people, and it was great. I saw the Violent Femmes in a small club, and I remember one show because uh, I've seen them a bunch. You know, you know how like you're at a show and, and and the lights are on and the music, not the band's music, but the house music is on, and then it goes dim. And the house music stops. So everyone's like, oh, here it comes. We're about to start. And you're looking at the stage, right? Well, we're looking at the stage and no, nothing was happening. And then you started hearing music, which was not coming over the speakers, but it was coming from like behind the crowd. And everybody turns around and the three of them come out from the back. There was a bar in the back of this club and they came out from the bar, like with a drum. Like, yeah, and they were playing like, and just some instruments and they went and the, and the, and the, sea, the seas parted, right? Like the crowd just moved out of the way. The three of them walked through the crowd, walked up onto the stage where their, you know, instruments were and they started this, this show. Yeah, that was really cool. Well, you talking about moshing and everything earlier, you know, when I, when, again, when I watched the documentaries, I can think of one Nirvana show where they're playing in this tiny club and it's just chaos. I mean, it's just anarchy in that club. And this was, you know it looked like astral world kind of footage, you know, it was that scary. Was that the kind of intensity that you experienced in those clubs then? Absolutely. I was at the perfect age because I was able to handle it, you know, being young, being in my late teens, early twenties, you know, physically I was able to handle it. I was, I wasn't really afraid. If I went to something like that now, I'd be petrified. (laughs) I'm going to end up in the hospital or something, but yes, it was, it was aggressive. It was crazy. It was wild. You almost had to go in, knowing that there was a chance you were going to get hurt, 
but it was going to be okay. Because honestly, and I don't want this to sound too, you know, kumbaya, if you will, but people did look out for each other. And if you fell, someone picked you up. Now, there were, you know, you had your share of knuckleheads and, and, you know, things like that too. But for the most part, with all the aggression and all the violence, it wound up being safe somehow, if that makes any sense. So what kind of, you talk about the spirit of people taking care of each other. What did that look like? Was it just, if somebody was moshing and you fell down, they stopped the pit and picked you up? Not really that intense. The, the pit always, always continued, but the people in your, in your immediate area uh, looked out for you and they would pick you up. Or if somebody was dancing and didn't know you were on the ground, they'd go and block that person until while you got picked up. Um, people watched out. It, it was, it was, it was a scene. It was, it was an actual physical scene of, of music fans and, and for the most part did care about each other. And that's something that I was wondering about, like, you know, when grunge music blew up and MTV really launched it, you know, and it became such a popular thing. And one of the Nirvana documentaries I watched, they were talking about jocks starting to show up at the, at the shows. What was, the, what was your experience with that? Was it just, was it still the cool music kids or did jocks start infiltrating? What did it look like? They did. They did infiltrate. And that was to be expected because it got, it got commercial. It got popular. You know, like you just mentioned, MTV started playing it, uh, Top 40 radio, because at the time, there were a lot of uh, radio stations that actually went to an alternative format that were maybe like classic rock prior to that. And so it became big. I, I was in college at the time. And, you know, college is very segmented. Like you've got, you know, the students who care about school and who were smart. And you had like the, the slackers and the music kids, maybe. And then you had the jocks. And then, you know, you had another group of kids who didn't seem to care about anything. Like, so everybody had their little box. And then the music got so popular that everyone showed up. So, yes, you did see jocks. And that's maybe where fights happened, you know, because they show up and, and get hit by someone uh, not realizing that's par for the course you know, they got hit and they fought back. You're not supposed to do that, but they didn't really know. Or some of them went there looking to fight. Do you think the scene got darker when grunge got popular? Yes. Yeah, I do. Again, I tried to stay with, you know, my group of people and the, the people who were there from the beginning. And you and, and you, you go to a ton of shows, so you know, like, there are people who just go to the shows uh, all the time. And, like, that's who I was with. But you would see it, and you would see the other stuff going on. And yeah, it got darker and the bands got a little bit frustrated with it. You know, that wasn't the crowd they were necessarily performing for. But again, they were all signed to major labels. They were all selling millions of records. They had to know that it wasn't just the underground kids anymore. You know, they had to expect that. Do you think the shows got worse when that happened? A little bit. I mean, I not from the band point of view. The bands always, you know, when I would go see a show, I, you know, for the most part, you know, bands put on a great show. But my experience got a little worse sometimes, yes, because I would look out a little bit more. I'd be a little bit more preoccupied with what was going on in the crowd and, and you know, okay, am I with friendly people or am I around not so friendly people? So, yeah, yeah, that, that definitely happened. What's a, what's a really fond memory when you're looking back at that little five-year period uh, what's a concert that has one of the fondest memories for you? Oh man. Oh, there are so many. I mean, some of them happened with bands that nobody knows about, 
you know, where you just like whether like and a lot of times this would happen in New York because you would go to CBGB's or you would go to Continental or some of the small, small clubs and then hang with the band afterwards. Not that you knew them beforehand, but, you know, you'd be there and there wasn't that many people and it wasn't that crowded and you'd go get a drink later or you'd get some coffee or everyone wind up at the diner together, and you know, kind of hang out. So nights like that were really cool. But as far as bands that were um, that were really, really big. Although, you know, it's interesting at the first, no, at the second Lollapalooza, the one where Pearl Jam, the bill that they were on, they went on second on that bill. And that's because they were sort of unknown when the tour started or just up and coming. But in the middle of that Lollapalooza tour, they really hit. And so being second no, no longer fit them. They should have been headlining or close to the end. But they were second. They went after Lush. And I remember when they started, when they started their set, the entire field, I saw, I saw Lollapalooza in Waterloo, New Jersey, Waterloo Village. It's a big, huge open field. And they came on and they started and the crowd just sprung to their feet and everybody, I mean, everybody rushed the stage. So if you'd ever been to a festival, you would know like, you know, there's, there's blankets and coolers and food and stuff like in your area. Well, all that, that disappeared. People just ran over everything and you either stayed to protect your stuff and get run over or you got up and ran we got up and ran and, and we wound up in the in, in the in the pit area when, when pearl jam came on so that was a cool that was a cool fun memory you talking about lush made me think about what bands are you surprised that never got bigger and also second question is what bands are you surprised that kind of faded from the discourse over time i mean you know nirvana and pearl jam are still just pop you know they're still incredibly popular but what about other bands that maybe have faded away? That's a good question. Well, the first one that really comes to mind as far as big bands uh, during that time would be Blind Melon. Mm, yep. A lot of people think that they were a one-hit wonder, and that's because of radio, and that's because of No Rain. You know, And they only, unfortunately, only put out two proper albums. There was a third that came out after Shannon had died, but they were really good. Their albums, to me, were, their, were, were great, actually but they were overrun with no rain on the radio and everyone just you know, thought that that's all they were. Um, and they, so they faded kind of quickly, I guess. And, and that was one that I always thought would have been, you know, forever, you know, and this, I, this answer, this next answer is going to sound weird maybe to some people, but I always felt, and I still do now, I always felt that Soundguard never got the, the due that the other bands got. Maybe now people talk about them more, but back then, like Soundgarden was almost not, not an afterthought necessarily, but it was Pearl Jam Nirvana, Pearl Jam Nirvana, you know, over and over. And Soundgarden, like they were there first. Yeah. Like Soundgarden started in 84. It just felt like they were a little bit less, never got talked about in that, that, that top tier. I mean, now they do, but back then it was almost like, Hey, what about these guys? You talking about Cornell and talking about Shannon, it makes me think about, you know, with the recent news about Taylor Hawkins passing away. Yeah. For me, these are, I mean, they're 20 years old, older than me. Uh, so they're icons, they're legends, they're of a different generation. So to me, they're, they're a different perspective. But, you know, when I think about my generation, I think of someone like Taylor Swift, who I've literally grown up with. Um, I mean, when I was in high school, she was in high school and we've grown up together, I feel like. What is it like for you, having grown up with these artists, you're similar in age, maybe a little younger, what is it like when one of them passes away now? That's a real. that's an interesting question. And I was just having a conversation uh, with a few people actually about this. 
I don't understand the psychology behind mourning someone you, you, you didn't know personally. You know, there's so much there. There's so much going on in, in, in you know, the psychological part of, of human beings when that happens. But it's real. It happens. And my first experience with that was Kurt, you know, and I was devastated. I was, I was, I was just like one of those kids you saw. If you watch, and I know you do all the documentaries, you, see, you saw them on the lawn, you know, when they were reading the suicide note over the loudspeakers and the kids were just sitting there. Like I was one of those kids, except I was sitting in my house 3,000 miles away from that. And I was devastated. And when Cornell died, I got a text from, from a friend like early that morning and I was barely awake and I'm, I'm looking at my phone and all it said was Chris Cornell died from my, you know, in, in the text message. And this was from a guy who always used to make kind of you know jokes and stuff. And he was a, a funny guy and I, I didn't believe him. And then of course I looked it up and it was true. And I was, it, it killed me. And, and even with Taylor Hawkins, like, uh, you know, he's 50, I'm going to be 49. Like I, you're right. We, we kind of grew up together. We're in the same, same exact era. And it almost feels like it's not supposed to happen uh, to these people. But then the, the other part of your brain, the logical part says, well, so many of them were troubled people and they were, you know, deep into drugs or alcohol or depression. That stuff is real music or not. That's real shit. And it takes a toll. And, um, you know, maybe sometimes you say to yourself, well, yeah, you probably should have seen it coming. So there's a lot of emotions attached to it and none of them are good. It's, it's really weird thinking about the top tier bands of the grunge movement, the alternative, you know, Soundgarden, Chris Cornell's gone, Nirvana, Kurt Cobain's gone, Alice in Chains, Lane Stanley's gone, you know, so many of these. And then Pearl Jam's pretty much the last man standing of a, you know, of a generation that's only 30 years ago when you have the Rolling Stones out there every single night. It's a really weird how many of them have passed away. I mean, do you think the dark, cause I mean, you talk a lot about, I remember, I forget who quoted it, but it was talking about how it was one of the eighties guys. They were really mad at the grunge movement because they were like, it's so dark and depressing. We were there to make people happy and they're just making everyone sad. Do you think that played an effect into all that? I do think that the music that came out in the early, the late eighties and early nineties and that became grunge. Um, I think it was created out of a dark place in, in many cases. I do think these people that were writing and making this music were doing it, you know, from their heart and it was who they were as people. But I also think some of it was a backlash against, you know, music that was making everybody happy not that being happy is a bad thing it's a, it's a great thing but it's not you know we're all human we're all like we're, we're complicated and life isn't all sex drugs and rock and roll or you know sunshine and flowers and these guys were writing and then these girls were writing music that was was dark because that's how they felt so i do think it played a role in the sound and the feel and the the way the, the era or the generation was perceived. And you got to remember too, at that time, you know, the country, the United States was going through a war, you know, we had the Gulf war and that was something that my generation had never seen. I remember being in high school and they were talking about the draft and maybe bringing that back. And that's the, like, we heard that word studying about Vietnam. We didn't know anything about 
draft, you know, and here we are thinking like, this is possible. Like, are they really going to come get us out of school and set us off to war? That was real. It was a real thing that people my age thought about. And these guys and girls writing this music at the time, they, they saw it too. You know, it was, it was, wasn't a, wasn't, wasn't the best time, I guess. It makes sense that some of this was pretty dark. And so we got a little dark there. So let's, let's pick it back up. Let's get some sunshine going. <laughs> you're a big Pearl Jam fan. Yeah. You're uh we've, you and I have had conversations before and you're, they're your favorite band. You've seen them a ton of times. Tell me about the first time you heard Pearl Jam. The first time I heard Pearl Jam. So I had heard of uh, previous bands that they were born from, you know, um, Green River and then Mother Love Bone. Uh, so I knew of Stone and I knew of Jeff. I don't remember the very first time I heard Pearl Jam as I, it, it, it was probably, I don't know if it was like one of these cassette compilations that used to come out and then eventually CD compilations that would come out. It could have been one of those, or I just knew that the guys from Mother Love Bone were starting a new band and, and I heard a song. It was probably a live or even flow. I would, I would guess um, at the time. Uh, but the first, and so I don't remember exactly, but I, I can tell you the first time I heard Eddie's voice changed my way of listening to music. What was it about his voice that changed everything? I think it was, well, you know, he's got, uh, just from a point of view, he's got a really nice singing voice. He's got a great singing voice. He's got that deep baritone. He's got the gravel when he needs it. It just sounds good. But he, for some reason, was able to convey emotion through his voice that I don't think if I had heard it before from someone else, it didn't land. It didn't connect for whatever reason, his emotion, his anger, his sadness, his depression, his way of getting out what he was getting out that hit me and it never left. It, it, it's, it's harder. It's, it's hard to explain. I don't know if I can, you know, add to that. It was really just this, wow, I feel this and, that was it. I was hooked. When was the first time you got to see them live? Um, that was uh, 92 in uh, Lollapalooza, uh, the second one. How was the show? <laughs> it was great. It was, it was short because they were second on the bill. So it was maybe 30 minutes, but it was loud. It was fast. The, the, the crowd was, was insane. I told you we all had to just run for our lives when they started. And this was during the time and it lasted several years uh, after that, or maybe, maybe not several, a couple after that, where Eddie would just climb anything in his way. And he'd hang from rafters and, and, and lighting rigs and dive into the crowd. I mean, the show was, was phenomenal. Yeah. How many times have you seen Pearl Jam since then? Well, I'm going to, I had tickets for um, the Madison Square Garden show 2020 from when COVID uh, hit and that was canceled. And I believe that would have been my 32nd time wow. seeing them. And they just announced, or not just, but recently announced, you know, a lot of the makeup shows and the new tour. And so I'll be seeing them again in September uh, with those same tickets when they come back to the garden. So for you to see a band that many times, you know, I've, I've seen a couple of bands close to that amount. One thing that I've noticed, especially, you know, especially, you know, when you've seen them for decades and multiple years, there's there kind of becomes this acquaintance with them to a sense. It's like, oh, you're getting to see a friend again this year. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think we've talked about I'm a big Dave Matthews band fan and I've seen them 20 plus something times. And my first show was in 2008 and I'm not the biggest fan of them anymore, but I still go see them every year just because I want to step back into that fandom a little bit. 
What's that like for you seeing Pearl Jam for so long and so many times? It's it's a little bit close to what you're talking about with, with Dave Matthews band. There's a legacy, there's a history, there's a relationship. There's no doubt about that. And, you know, you want to almost compare, you know, okay, what do they sound like now as opposed to two years ago or 20 years ago? And you know this, you know, Pearl Jam changes their set nightly. Uh, what surprises they have in store for you. But I don't listen to them as much as I used to. I wouldn't say I'm, I'm less of a fan, but I just don't put them on as much as I used to. But I will always see them and I always get tickets. I'm in the 10 club. I will always get my, 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 my tickets. And that, yeah, I can't see that ever changing. We talk about this a lot on the show. It's just how concerts are mile markers for our lives. You, you know, that Lollapalooza show was a big moment for you. And so what are some of the mile markers that you have related to, to Pearl Jam shows? Uh, two stand out. One is, and this is, a, this is only uh, something that I, I could have understood after I became a, a, a father. My, my daughter was born uh, in 2013. And I remember like early baths that we would give her and, and what we would always play music. And at the time, is it Lightning Bolt? I guess it was, which is not a good record. No, it's not. <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> Sirens. Yes. Oh. The song Sirens. That's what I was. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Well, but here's the thing. So to answer your question, and that came out, uh, and my daughter was born in September uh, of 2013. So giving her these baths and just her being a little baby and you know, always playing music, she reacted to Sirens. Like as a baby, and she couldn't talk. She couldn't tell me, but there was a calmness. There was like a little smile, a giggle. And every time I, so I was like, oh, you like this? And I would play it again and I'd get that same reaction from her. So it kind of became my song with her. You know, that was just, just the the first time I I saw her react to it, it did something to me. So the next time I saw them and they played that song, uh, I'm not ashamed to say that like I got teary eyed and I kind of like was emotional more so than I thought I'd ever be over a song like that. Um, but it was my connection with my daughter through the band that I loved. And it just, it made sense, you know? Um, and I don't know that another band song could have done that, you know? So that I think was, was, was one. And the other one, and this is more for, you know, any Pearl Jam fan would understand this one. I think I happened to be at the show in Philly mm-hmm. when they played 10, straight through uh and they had never done that before um they had played other records straight through they had just started doing that it had just become a thing they never announced what they were going to do at least not to my knowledge and they certainly didn't announce philly and they just did it and i remember like you know they opened uh with once which they've done before not one of their classic openers but they've opened with it before like okay cool then like you knew it because the crowd, like, like they played even flow. Then, yeah, like the crowd is hushed and people are like, "All right, if if a live starts to play, this is this thing is happening." And the first chord <laughs> that was struck, the first that very very recognizable, alive chord, it was like the house just came down. The place went nuts. Like people were jumping up and down, hugging each other as if we were at, you know, a national championship game, you know, or a Super Bowl or their team just had won, you know, the World Series. It was crazy. And because we knew we knew what they were doing. 
and they played 10 straight through. And it was, uh, I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that show. Growing up with that album, how did that make you feel to hear it performed live front to back, knowing that it's never been performed before? It, it, it definitely like part of history. Like, wow, this is a first. I hope they don't. I, and I got really selfish. I didn't want them to ever do it again because I wanted to be, and I don't know if they have. I, I don't, don't think so. But I, I remember thinking at the time, I don't want them to. Yeah, I don't think they have. And I hope so. If that's true, I hope they don't. Because I, I want to be one of the, you know, <laughs> one of the twenty thousand that were there, so that that I got to see that. Um, but that that was that was really cool. That record. So it doesn't sound like the other Pearl Jam albums, but because I grew up with it, it was the first one, and there was all this emotion attached to it. Um, that night at, in, in Philly made a made, made a huge impact on me because of it it's really cool so you since you've seen pearl jam since the early 90s and to today how are they today how are they live how are the albums today oh they're you know you mentioned the rolling stones earlier um and they just keep going out right and, and I, i've seen the rolling stones as well i'm not going to make a comparison musically it's just also different whatever but my point is i think that they are completely comfortable with who they are they know their catalog inside and out. They know what their fans want and, and expect. They deliver every single night. You know, they don't disappoint. I honestly, like, I may not like every single song they play live, but they give it their all. They don't mail it in. You know, their shows, in my opinion, have gotten better over the years. I think, you know, with more experience and more understanding of their audience and who they are, I think they just, they just deliver a better show each time out. So I would expect in September of this year that I'm going to, you know, walk into walk into the garden and I'm going to, you know, witness another great Pearl Jam show. I, I don't expect anything less. And it's their fault. <laughs> you talked about, uh, you know, seeing them in the 90s and thinking about, you know, those first three to five albums, you know, that was prime Pearl Jam. You really don't get much better than that. How were the set list? Now, if you see them, you're going to get some lightning bolt. You're going to get some of the new stuff that you don't want to particularly hear. So how was it seeing them in a golden age of set list? Yeah, it, it was different because obviously there was, there was less material, right? So to, and they still played long shows. Um, they didn't play as long as they do now, uh, but they did play long shows and they just filled it with a lot of covers. You know, they would play a lot of cover songs and um, you know, Eddie also too, and he still does it. You know, he's not shy. In the very beginning, he was, but uh, he got comfortable pretty quickly. And you know, he could talk, and he can, he can, he can command the crowd, and he can have a back and forth, and he can, he can say a lot. And regardless of what you think of his personality or his politics or his his view on things, he has a lot to say. And and I think as a as a fan, even even if you disagree, you should probably just you know you know go in knowing go go into the show knowing that that's a possibility. And, and just be okay with it because it's coming from a genuine place and it's hard to blame anybody when they're, when they're speaking from the heart, whether you agree or not. I was at a show at the Nassau Coliseum and then it was right after 2000, right after September 11th. It was when, you know, the world and, and New York in particular started to open up again and they played Bush Leaguer and the crowd booed. Like the, I've, it got so uncomfortable, man. It was, I'd never been in a Pearl Jam show where they got booed and they got booed. Like it, it was loud. It, I got nervous. I, w I didn't know what was going to happen because 
you know, it was New York and that's where 9-11 happened and New York full of firemen and cops and, and you know, we were all still grieving people that we, we lost in, in, in the towers. People equated Eddie's take on, on the president to somehow being not in line with the way New Yorkers were feeling. Like it was almost like a slap in the face they were taking it as. And I didn't see it that way, but a lot of people did. And Eddie made some comments and they actually ended the show early. They played a few more songs and then they left. And I remember Matt Cameron saying reviews since he didn't know what to do. Like he didn't, he did, he was, he kind of felt like I was feeling, I think, and the rest of us were feeling like we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know what to do. We were all in this together, like in a bad way though. And yeah. And they left. Taking it on the other end of the spectrum, what was your absolute favorite Pearl Jam show that you've attended? Well, there are two. I would probably have to say the the, the 10 show in Philly, simply because of what they did. But <laughs> there was another one they played. And this was at a time when uh, they were like doing some weird shows, some smaller shows, uh, because you couldn't like you, you couldn't fathom that they would play in a place like this. But they played in Atlantic City. In um, uh, I think it was the Borgata. It's like a fifteen hundred person room. That's cool. They can't play places like that anymore, you know. No. But this particular year, and I don't remember the year, but they did, and you know, it was, it was announced. It was on the tour, but you couldn't get tickets. It was impossible. My buddy and I, who I go to most of the Pearl Jam shows with, we went to AC for that weekend. They played twice. I think they played twice there, and uh, we just figured, let's try and get tickets. And we could we couldn't get tickets. They were just so expensive. It was all black market, and they were about to go on. The show was gonna, or the doors were gonna open soon. And my buddy was like, "Forget it. We're not we're not getting in. We know that. We don't have the money to buy any of these tickets." So we started playing some slot machines. I'm not kidding. Within one or two spins of that decision, my buddy hit for like six hundred bucks, <laughs> and we just when we just were, were negotiating wanted like 300 bucks a ticket we just won 600 nice we had tickets that's incredible. we walked we walked over to the guy we you know we cashed it we cashed the ticket gave him gave him the money and we went into the show and to see them at that stage of their career in such a small venue and the way we got in minutes before it started with literally luck of the draw uh that was crazy that was phenomenal that was a lot of fun. Well, Rob, as we as we finish up today, do you have anything you want to plug? You want to talk a little bit more about Generation Riff? Plug me something. Yeah, sure. Um, I'll, I'll give you two. Well, with Generation Riff, that that's obviously you know um, uh, what I'm working on most of the time now, and uh, I appreciate you you know highlighting that. But the other thing I'm doing too uh, is uh, Abandoned Albums, which is um, a, a podcast that we do with uh, or I do with a writer named Keith R. Higgins. It's a really cool concept. I think we talked to musicians who had a hit somewhere in their career and then put out another album that didn't do as well. And we dive into why they think that happened. So, for example, we had um, Vaden Todd Lewis from the Toadies. We had him on recently because Rubberneck was such a huge hit. But then, you know, six or seven years later, <laughs> when the next record came out, uh, Help Below Stars Above, great record, but just didn't do anything. And, uh, it's been a lot of fun. We, we we're getting a lot of interesting guests to come on, so it's 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 been it's been a blast. 
That's really cool. Well, Rob, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming by. I hope uh, hope you enjoyed yourself as well. This was great. Thanks for stopping in. Yeah, no, thank you. I really appreciate it. And it's, as always, it's, I'd love talking music with you. So this is, this is awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Rob. I'm Lance Ingram, and this is Yesterday's Concert. Thanks for tuning in to another show. Sources and more information on today's show are available on our website, yesterdaysconcert.com. While you're there, check out some old episodes or connect with us on Twitter at ConcertPod or on Instagram at Yesterday's Concert. And until next time, take care of your shoes. We'll be right back.